Bibles and turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai. And let's stand together. And Jim Millen's going to come and read our text for this morning. Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. Beginning at verse 10. Haggai chapter 2. Beginning at verse 10. Let's read. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priests answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the way that you have been speaking to us through this uh, minor prophet, Lord. And we just ask that as we are gathered here this morning, that we would find ourselves um, in a place where we are teachable, where we're humble before you. And Lord, that you would have your way with us. Lord, may we identify with uh, the remnant people there in Jerusalem as we come to this message. Well, may we see God in all his glory and his goodness and grace, loving on his people. And uh, Lord, would be, we be encouraged, Lord, by this. Uh, Lord, would you allow me as your messenger to simply reflect your truth? And would you... Lord, now have your way with us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, years ago when I was in college, uh, where I went to school, every semester we would have a special Saturday that was set aside for what was called white glove. And basically the whole day was a day when the students in their dorms were responsible for cleaning their dorm rooms from top to bottom. And we would divide the different responsibilities. Someone was in charge of the sink, and someone was in charge of, of uh, the floors, and someone was in charge of windows and all that kind of stuff. But you were also responsible for all of your stuff. Um, and then at dinner time, everyone had to go to dinner, and the white glove inspectors would come in and determine whether or not um, you pass that inspection. It's possible maybe for you to get demerits. It's possible for you to have to do the whole thing again. Um, so there was some pressure that was on there, but there were some tricks that students had um, to see what they could do so that they wouldn't have to do all the work. And some of that was 
things like this. And I'm thinking about guys in particular. Girls would never think of this kind of stuff. But, but guys would, would take their dirty clothes that were supposed to be clean, and they would fold them and put them underneath the clean clothes in their drawers. Hopefully you don't do that at home, okay? Um, and then they would try and cover things up around. Like they would put, they would put a bunch of books maybe on a, on a shelf that was supposed to be clean. And the idea was, well, if I have something on it, they're not going to check it, right? Um, and then there was one other secret place. It was under the, there were two bunks on one side, under the, the, this main bunk, you could lift up the bed, and it was all kind of covered in wood, um, but you could lift up the bed, and that's where you put your suitcases and stuff. Well, people would take a lot of their trash and their dirty stuff, and they would throw it in there, hoping that the inspector would not look down there. And so they were very, very clever in the way that they went about hiding their messes, rather than actually doing the work that they needed to do. On the surface, there were all the appearances of having cleaned their room, but the reality was below the surface was a room that was not clean at all. All seemed well, all seemed organized, but that was not the truth. They were clever in concealing things. I say they because I never did anything like that, I want to say to you. Um, I was always responsible to clean everything. In fact, on some levels, um, White Glove Saturdays actually had an impact on me, uh, a good impact, some good lessons I learned, I think valuable lessons from White Glove. The first lesson I learned was this, be sure to clean my room at least once a semester, which I think is a really good principle, um, and my children are not allowed to follow that responsibility. Um, in fact, the reality was there was cleanup that had to take place every day, but this was like a deeper cleaning. The second principle, though, is this, that, that I can be very cunning in the ways I try to pretend to be clean before an inspector, but I'm really not. And the third principle, I think, that, that would glean out of that is this, that, that there is a parallel in my spiritual life that flows out of my sinful heart that I can make lots of effort to appear, appear clean, but in the secret places of my heart, there is sin that God still sees, and he wants me to be honest about it. Now, sometimes we think of God as being kind of this overbearing ogre God, and he's just there to condemn sin, and certainly condemning sin is part of the natural aspect of his character. But God also wants us to be honest about the fact that there is sin. A number of years ago, I remember going out for lunch with some friends and sitting down. I really wasn't that hungry, so I thought, I'll get myself something light. And so I ordered the chicken fingers, and it came with some fries and stuff like that. And um, I waited. They got their big meals, and I got my chicken fingers. They were golden brown. They looked wonderful. The fries looked crispy. I had all the, the sidings there, the ranch, the honey mustard sauce. And when I bit into these chicken fingers, I found out that they were still frozen on the inside. All the appearance was there, but what was inside was what turned me off to them. And friends, in a nutshell, as we come to this particular text and this particular setting of God's people in Judah, the, the, the third message that God gives through Haggai um, basically is this. When it comes down to it, it's what's on the inside that counts. God is concerned with the heart. And he's far more concerned with the heart than any building construction is concerned. Now, was the temple important to God? Absolutely. 
But the construction of the temple was not more important than the condition of the hearts of the people. And so we begin at verse 10, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. So it had been exactly three months since the work on the temple had begun. Or we say, since the people had gotten right with God, since they had repented of their sin of neglect. It had been just about two months since God had last spoken a word of encouragement to them. It was December 18th, 520 B.C. We can be that specific because God is very specific and Haggai is very specific in recording what God said. And so we know then that the October early rains had already come and that there was this, this time, this season of intense agricultural activity of plowing and preparation, then ultimately seeding and plowing that seed into the ground. And that had already taken place. And so now they're entering these winter months where the seed has been sown and now they're working on the temple. And they're waiting for the crop to bear fruit, but they're also working on the temple as God instructed. And now in December, while they're busy working on the temple, God comes to them with another message through Haggai the prophet. And he begins with two questions, two questions that he is going to ask here. And he's asking these questions of the priests. Let's look at the first question. Well, these two questions, first of all, let's read verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. Now, just to pause here, these questions were not difficult questions for the priests. These were very basic questions. We might call them Sunday school questions although they didn't have Sunday school back then, but you get the point. These were obvious to children who would grow up in a Sunday school context. That's how simple these questions are. But God is making a point by asking these questions. So question number one, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. And so the principle here is referring to the practice of the priests who, when the sacrifice is made, a portion of that food was given then to the priests. They would take it in the fold of their garment. That would protect that piece of meat from contamination with other things. But the garment that was holding was also considered to be um, the, the means by which um, defilement could, would come. And so it was, it, the point is this, if, if it... Um, if the fold of that garment containing the holy meat were then to touch some other food item, would the holiness from that holy meat transfer over into the bread, the stew, or the wine? And what's the answer to that question? The answer is no. So the first question is, does it become holy? Is it possible for something holy to transfer its holiness into something else? And the answer that the priest knew was no. Holiness then we could say, holiness is not transferable. Let me illustrate this a couple of different ways. If my daughter, Vanessa, is sick, and I am healthy, and I say to myself, you know what, I am healthy, so I want my daughter to be healthy. So what I need to go do is go over to my daughter, Vanessa, and I need to give her a big, fat, wet one. 
That's a kiss for those of you that don't know what that is, all right? Will my health transfer over into her then being healthy if I kiss her? What's the answer? No. In fact, I shouldn't do that because it's likely that I'll be infected by that sickness. If I am finished working in my yard and my jeans are muddy and my shirt is muddy, I don't throw those muddy jeans and that muddy shirt into the washing machine and say to myself, I want these to be totally clean, so let me run upstairs to my drawer where my white t-shirts are. Let me take them out and take them down to the laundry, and my white t-shirts will then take out all the mud that is in these jeans, right? Is that what happens? No, absolutely not. Those will no longer be white t-shirts if you do that. You don't go out and do work in the yard with gloves on and expect the mud to get glovey. All right? Your gloves get muddy. All right? Holiness is not transferred. You don't buy a bag of apples that are all rotten hoping that that one healthy apple will infect all the other apples and make them healthy. Okay? That's the point. That's the point that God is making with these people, that holiness is not transferable. Okay? Let's look at the second question. The second question is this. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these... Does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it, is, it does become unclean. So this question deals with the principle of contamination or being ceremonially or ritually unclean due to touching, in particular, a dead body. If someone, according to uh, Numbers 19, um, touches a dead body, they were, they were ritually and ceremonially unclean. And because of that, they were put out of the camp. And not only were they put out of the camp, but they were then excluded from all the festivals and activities that were going on during that week because there would be a week of cleansing that was necessary for them to get back to the place where they were clean once again. That's the picture. That's the context of this question. So the question is, does it become unclean. And the, the lesson here is this, uncleanness is contagious, is transferable. Let me try to illustrate this. How do we respond to the following? Go out to a restaurant, restaurant or the, the wait, waiter comes with your coffee, and floating on the top of your coffee is a hair. Now, I know there are some of you who just go take it out and drink the coffee because you love coffee, right? One trumps the other. But most of us would say, ew, get me another cup of coffee, right? Because there's a hair in it. Um, the soup comes out, and there's a fly doing the crawl in your soup. How are you going to respond? Get me another soup. I'm not going to eat that. It's just a little fly. I mean, look at the size of your soup compared to that little fly, right? How about... Someone brings you a cup of water, and it's just a little E. coli in the water, okay? Just a little. Not much. Just, just a tad bit, all right? So we can summarize these questions as teaching two very important truths. Holiness is not contagious, but uncleanness is.
Okay? That's what God is now laying as a foundation for the people through the priests. These two questions. But these questions now lay the foundation for an application here to the people. Let's think now about this application to the people. Verse 14, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. So he's saying this, what, what the, this is what the nation of Judah was doing with me. And it resulted ultimately in their judgment and being taken into captivity. This is what you as the remnant were doing before I came and rebuked you through my first message. You had neglected your responsibility. You had set it aside. You had rationalized. You justified your behavior. You actually thought you were doing the right thing because you were so deceived in your thinking. And he says, so it is. And that expression, so it is, simply is, is a way of saying, in both cases, the nations and the remnant had been guilty of the same thing. They have been doing the exact same thing. So let's look, first of all, at the, the ancestors, the nations. They were guilty of imagining that their, their external observances at the temple were enough to secure God's favor. Because the temple was still standing. And they were going to the temple and they were offering sacrifices. They were going through the motions. There was religious activity going on. Even when they were deliberately disobeying him in other important matters, they leaned on their ritual observances to be the basis of God's protection and blessing for their life. Now, friends, we need to learn from that because we want to avoid that. Um, there was a, they were lacking a, a pure and sincere heart before God. So we could summarize it by saying this. They were outwardly religious, but inwardly they were unclean. Now, it's not just the ancestors of Judah that God is concerned about. God is concerned about the remnant. Now, some commentators believe that the remnant had slipped back into some kind of uncleanness which God is now addressing. And I don't think that's what the text is actually saying. I think the text is, is really a text of encouragement. I think the text is actually a, a text of warning. They had repented of their sin. We, we see the beauty of that in chapter 1. We see the encouragement that they needed at the beginning of chapter 2 through the second message. And now they are just plugging away, doing what God has called them to do. And there's a warning here. There's something of danger that is lurking for these people who have just repented of their sin and are busy, eagerly pursuing what God has called them to do. And friends, it's the danger of drifting into a belief that the holy work that they're involved in will make them holy in God's sight. To believe that somehow their involvement, their association with the work on the temple would somehow rub off in greater holiness. Now, I remember when I was still learning the ropes of ministry in Anderson, South Carolina. We went door-to-door visiting people, and uh, I really look back on that as a time of, of, of great growth and understanding for me. But I, I, I realized during that time that this was a, South Carolina, was a highly Christianized culture. 
And in that kind of highly Christianized culture, it was not uncommon when you met someone, you started talking about the things of God, that they would bring up someone in their family who was a pastor. And the common thing was, oh, yeah, yeah, my, past, my, my grandfather is a pastor of such and such, you know, Baptist, Methodist, whatever church it was. They weren't attending, they weren't thoughtful about the things of God, but they knew that someone in their family was a pastor, and there was a sense in which they measured their acceptance before God by virtue of what their grandfather did. Maybe your mother was a prayer warrior, mine was, but I cannot ride on the coattails of my mother's holiness, and you cannot ride on the coattails of anyone else's holiness. I mean, you may have known someone who was considered to be a high-standing Christian leader in this world, but their holiness does not somehow, you know, rub off on you because you happen to be in their proximity. And friends, oftentimes we can be fooled to think that simply in doing what God has called us to do, that somehow we are in a greater holy status than we are. What we need to realize is that all we do in God's eyes is considered unclean. Now, this may come as a shock to you, but that's what the Scriptures teach. And it begins to take us to a place where we need to discover two key doctrines that are foundational to our understanding of holiness before God. The doctrine of original sin and the doctrine of man's total depravity. It's like, what does that mean? Listen, it's so important that we understand the nature of man, man's condition to understand what God is doing when it comes to the subject of holiness. So this morning, let's take some time to, to discover, just in a, in a brief way, these two doctrines. One builds out of the other. First of all, the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. I'll pop that up there in just a second. The doctrine of original sin teaches that the sin of Adam in the garden is transferred to the human race. Now write down in your notes, Romans 5.12. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man is Adam in the context, that's what's being talked about here, and death through sin. So sin came through Adam, death through that sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. Man is contaminated with sin through Adam. We are not polluted because we followed the example of Adam in sinning. We are polluted because of Adam's sin, and now our very nature is permeated with sin. We are sinful beings. Let me say it this way. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because by nature we are sinners. Now, all of us follow the example of Adam, but it's not the following of the example of Adam that is what brings the defilement. We are simply fleshing out what was already there in our nature. Okay? That's the simple doctrine of original sin in simple form. 
But friends, that, that leads us then into the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. The implication then of, of original sin is that mankind is totally depraved. Now the word depraved can conjure up a lot of things in your mind, right? It doesn't mean that we're all as evil as we can be, okay? It doesn't mean that everyone in here is running around in the back of their car with an axe chasing people trying to murder them. It doesn't mean that we're all running around that we're, we're Hitler's. Okay? Or add whatever evil person you can think of in your mind. That's not what depravity is. That might be an example of someone who is depraved, but that is not what depravity here is talking about when it's, we're talking about the sinfulness of man and how that affects man. It does mean that every part of our being is infected by sin. Let's go back to that illustration. Imagine taking a cup of fresh Evian water and just putting a few small drops of poison in it. Would you drink it? If you compared how much water is there to how much, how much poison there is, would you drink it? And the answer is, well, no, you wouldn't. Why? Well, I'll just drink the part that's not infected. No, it's all infected with the poison, right? Just a few little drops. And so if you measure the ratio of the drops of poison to how much water there is, you wouldn't say, well, it's not going to affect me. Oh, it will affect you. Why? Because it's poison. That poison infects everything. And the same is true of sin in the nature of man. It affects everything. Everything I do, think and say, is by nature and nurture totally infected by sin. And so, friends, the lie of this world is that we are all basically good and that it is the environment, or our upbringing, or our genetics that determine our behavior. It's not what Scripture teaches at all. What Scripture teaches is that because of Adam, this, this race of mankind is permeated and infiltrated and infected by sin in their very nature, in their very being. Now, Sad to say, much of the church doesn't necessarily believe that, but that's what scriptures teach. Now, oftentimes we, even in our, in our language, we kind of talk in ways that go against this teaching. You know, we have been blessed in this church to have just an abundance of, of, of births of beautiful, wonderful, chubby, gorgeous children, right? And... Um, let me tell you something. We often talk about, oh, you know, that child. So, the innocence of children. Now, how many people have had children before? It doesn't take long until you find out that it's not your example that is the reason why that child is sinning. It's not the fact that they're watching Barney or SpongeBob or anything else along those lines. Well, the wiggles might have some effect, but I don't know about anything else. But the reality is, it's, they're sinning. Why? Because that is part of their very nature. Now, certainly, we do give examples for them to follow, but the reason they sin is not because we give them the example. The reason they sin is because that's their very nature to sin, and you don't have to teach your children to sin. They naturally do it. 
That's hard sometimes for us to comprehend because we do talk about, oh, you know, it's cute, it's just innocent. No, that's sin. That tantrum there is sin. What are you going to do with it? And how are you going to counsel that child? How are you going to help that child to realize what that is, right? Now, we must come face to face with the reality that we cannot do anything good that merits God's approval. Every part of us is inclined to evil. You and I will not do good, nor uh, will anyone else. So as God asks the two questions and then applies it to the people, he wants them to be aware that there is always a tendency because of their sinful nature that is infected by sin to revert back to a religiousness that believes that their holy work is the means and the measure of their holiness before God. Let me say that one more time. Here's what God is driving at with the people as he's pressing it home, as he's applying it to them, and ultimately as he's applying it to us. He wants us to be aware that there is always a tendency because of our sinful nature that is infected with sin to revert back to religiousness that believes that their holy work, our holy work, is the means and the measure of our holiness before God. In other words, back in chapter 2, the, the, the oh, end of chapter 1, the people just gloriously repent. We saw that as a revival of God's people in that particular place. And they said, we are going to get back to the, to the work that God has called us to. And there's this wonderful spiritual renewal that takes place. But now they start working on the, on the temple, and they start thinking about the temple, and now their life becomes, oh, the temple, and the temple is it, and now it's like, well, God, you're satisfied with me doing this temple, and God, don't you want me to continue doing this work on this temple, and we can have sacrifices here, and aren't these sacrifices great, and we can be focusing on the material side of things and forgetting that God wants a heart relationship, and we replace this wonderful grace with defiled work that is seeking to merit approval of God. And friends, that is true of these people just as much as it is true of us. And it's not that building the temple was the wrong thing. It was the right thing. But we can be doing the right thing, as we say, for all the wrong reasons, right? Let's bring it to our place. Bring it to today. All right, how many of you go to church? <laughs> Hopefully everyone's raising their hand, right? Because you're here. All right? God's given you a Bible. You're reading it. You're given the opportunity to pray, the opportunity to fellowship. There's fasting. You can go down through the spiritual disciplines. What are those spiritual disciplines there for? Are they there to say, you know what? I did this, God. Aren't you happy with me? Aren't you pleased? Doesn't that make me more holy? And then I do this, and God, see, this makes me more holy. And I say, wait a second. Certainly we are in this process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, and these disciplines are the, the specific responsibilities that God has placed in our lives so that we can grow and become like his son. But if we replace the doing of them with this grace that has been given to us by virtue of Jesus Christ on the cross, then we have reverted into a works performance-based relationship with God rather than trusting in the grace of the goodness of the gospel in our lives. It's a very, very subtle thing, but friends, it's so subtle that it can lead us away from honestly and genuinely pursuing God with our lives. So God is concerned for us that having repented of our sin and returned to him, we would drift back into a practice 
of attempting to seek a right standing with him through our outward religious activities. Let's put it this way, that what began as salvation by grace alone would turn into a sanctification by works. Okay? Now, friends, Satan is very, very clear in his, in his deceptions, isn't he? Very, very clever. And he comes to the followers of Christ with two great lies. Let me just pause here and say this. Uh, Satan cannot enter you. He always works from the outside. But he knows human nature so well that the lies that he brings, he knows that those lies are very, very effective. He's been around for a long time. He knows how people think and behave because he's observed it through the years. Okay? Here's lie number one. He's always attempting to persuade us that our sin is not that serious. Or to say it this way, to downplay the seriousness of our sin. Ah, that's not really that bad. Oh, that's not really a sin before God. Ah, it's not a big thing. I wouldn't put that on a big cast, just kind of a minor. Ah, it's not that big of a deal. Before God, guess what? It is. All sin is sin, regardless of how we perceive the magnitude of that sin. Now, certainly, greater sins will have greater consequence. But sin is sin. Okay? Secondly, here's the next one. He is always attempting to turn us to outward religion instead of turning to him or to say to God. Satan does not like the fact that when we are humble before God, that we're turning to God. He would rather us not listen to anything that is bringing identification that something that we're doing is sin and instead turn to religious forms, outward religious forms, to somehow seek to please God knowing that those do not. And they are a substitute. So any religion will do as long as it replaces a heart that is turning to God. He doesn't want us to turn to God. So he comes, he downplays sin, and he holds up outward religion to replace a genuine turning to God. And friends, this is the warning for the people of God here, that outward religion, outward forms, the things that maybe God has called them to do would replace their relationship with him. And why is it that outward religion is so attractive to us? Because we can control it. We can determine, are we going to go to church? Are we going to read our Bible? Are we going to attend such and such thing? You know, am I going to go to this conference? And am I going to do this? And we determine then what is important to, to measure our relationship with God. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. When God is in control, he determines how we relate to him. He requires worship that is from the heart, not simply an outward, ritualistic, formalistic kind of worship. So let's just kind of bring this home a little bit in practical ways. Whatever God has called you to, he wants you to do it for his glory from your heart. So for those who are married, when you look at your spouse and recognize that God has called you to a responsibility to them, understand God is not just interested in your going through the motions, but he is calling you to serve him and them from your heart and for his glory. 
for those of you who have children and you get over the fact that they are infected and polluted by sin, God wants you to see your responsibility is an act of worship that flows out of a thankful heart. It's a heart issue. It's not just a do, it's a heart issue. When you come face to face with a boss, a coworker, or an apprentice who is giving you a hard time, remember, God has placed you in that environment so you can worship Him. And He wants you to worship Him with an attitude that flows out of your thankful heart, not simply by going through the motions expected of you. There are these forms, they're very, very subtle. But God wants us to rest on his grace. And so let's put it this way. A drifted heart is a heart that has been deceived along the way to believe that God's grace isn't enough and needs to be improved upon by my works, by my religious activity. Let me say it again. A drifted heart is a heart that has been deceived along the way to believe that God's grace isn't enough and needs to be improved upon by my works, by my religious activity. And to be sure, when that thought is there, it is the whisper of Satan. So the question came, and the application followed, but now God comes to them with a confirmation. And it's a confirmation of his promises. The first one is, for them to look at their past. He comes and says, let's look at your past. Remember how I chastened you in your sin, verses, verse 15 through 17. Now then, consider on this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there was but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil and blight, and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. This people did not turn to God, even though they were under the disciplining hand of God. He struck them, but they did not turn to him. And so he says, consider your ways. And when he says, consider your ways, remember he's saying, listen, take a hard look at yourself. Take a hard look at the road you've walked. Take a hard look at where you are now. Take a hard look at what's ahead of you. So when we look into our past, at the seasons of our lives, what do we see? How does God want us to respond? Dale Davis um, gives these helpful ways that we can respond to various seasons of difficulty and trial and, and, and chastisement in our lives. Number one, have an openness that God wants to teach you through your circumstances. You know, when I'm interacting with someone, you might want to say in a counseling setting, they're, they're talking about this trial that they're going through. I always keep this little, little box or this little circle, and it's, the, it's the, the place where God wants to teach you something about him through that trial. What is he teaching you? What is he showing you about himself? What is he showing you about yourself? What is he showing you about how maybe you've drifted in your understanding and your belief about who God is? And so he's saying here, have an openness that God wants to teach you through your circumstances. Don't think that God has done you a wrong because he has done what you do not like. 
We pray, Lord, would you do this? Would you do this? Would you do this? And he does the opposite of what we want. Does that mean God doesn't like you? Not at all. It means that we need to resolve ourselves to the fact that God is sovereign and he knows what is best. But oftentimes, if we don't get what we pray for, we're angry, we're upset with God. He's not on my side. He's not listening to me. No, he listened to you. But he has chosen to act and to behave and to do what he deems best. And sometimes it's hard for us to connect those dots. Secondly, he says, offer him a soft heart that is sensitive to him and willing to listen. Soften your heart. Not only seek to understand what he's teaching you, but soften your heart to embrace it, to receive it, to grow and to learn, and so that you would continue to listen. The third thing is pray through your circumstances that God would give you holiness even if he doesn't give you insight. Let me say that again. Pray that God would, through those circumstances, give you holiness, even if he doesn't give you insight. The most important thing you need to ask in the the middle of some kind of difficulty or trial is, God, what do I need to do to be right with you, regardless of anyone else? And you say, well, I want to know why this is happening. We all want to know why. And sometimes we can be distracted from the growth that God wants us to have or the holiness of a relationship with him because we're demanding why. But God doesn't always promise an answer of why. And so we pray that through those circumstances that God would give us holiness, that we would respond in a way that would honor and please him, not necessarily for that, we, that we would have insight. Pray more for godliness than to know why. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 24. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 24. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah, a prophet that was not treated well by his people. Um, He goes to God in prayer, and this is a prayer that I think is very helpful for us, that I think we can glean from, and I think is a balanced prayer from someone who is going through great trial, someone who's speaking for God and is receiving abuse from the very people that God is in his grace speaking to through him. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 24, correct me, O Lord, but in justice. Is that fair? Correct me, Lord, but in a right way. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Now, friends, we need to be real about our condition. That because of Adam, we are infected with sin. That because of that infection with sin, that our nature is totally infected by that sin. So the way we think, the way we act, the way we behave, all comes from a heart that is battling with our sin nature. And so we assume, based on that reality, that not everything we do is going to be squeaky clean in God's eyes. Even the good that we think that we're doing is tainted by sin. I was even having a conversation with someone here this morning about preaching and, you know, do you get nervous when you preach? And I'm like, yeah, I get nervous every time I preach. And why is that? Because of the weight of what's going on. And also I know my human nature that in the middle of a sermon, I might give an illustration and think to myself, well, that's a really good illustration. So in the middle of preaching, there is sin that is rising up in my heart. That is sin. And I need to step back and say, God, forgive me. And all those things are happening in the context of me preaching. You don't know what's happening. 
You know what it's like to have a conversation with God while you're doing different things, right? That's not schizophrenia. That's life. That's living. And so there's all this kind of stuff. And it could be like, well, I could say, well, yeah, psh, that's no big deal. That's not sin. No, it is. Why? Because the focus then is me. That great illustration that Rod used. What a great illustration. People walking out, man, that was a great illustration. Oh, Rod, so, he's so smart. He's a man, the way he... No, that's all about me. I don't want you to see me. I simply want to be a mouthpiece. And that's my heart saying, God, I want to be humble to the task you've called me to. And yet in the midst of that, even though I desire to be holy, there's tainting of sin that can rise up very easily. And friends, that is true of all of us. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice. Not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. So look at your past, and they certainly had a past to look at. And I want you to notice here also verse 15. Now then, consider from this day, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord. In other words, before you actually repented, before you got back to the work. This is how I treated you. This is what was going on. Now, having said that, look uh, at, at, he says, look at the present, Okay. Their present circumstance was that the seed had been planted, and now they're working on the temple while waiting for the crops to yield. So verse 18, consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig, the tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. They had done what they were supposed to be doing. They had been working on the temple. They also had responsibilities to, to do the agricultural work that was necessary for their particular nation. And so they had done those things. But they're in this kind of agricultural limbo mode. I shared this, on, I think, on Wednesday night, or maybe it was last week in here, but I remember you know, taking a seed and planting it in the ground. Did I talk about this last week? And it was an apple seed, and putting it in the ground and pouring water. So as a little kid, you know, like, oh, I want to see it grow. And then the next day, running out and opening up the dirt to see if there's any growth and nothing. And so I put it down and watered it some more. The next day, came out and still didn't see anything like that, right? This is the kind of mode that these people are in. They've done what they need to do. And in an agricultural world, you need to go out there, you need to plow, you need to plant, you need to water, and you step away. You let nature take its course, right? But you don't know whether there's going to be a good crop or it's going to be a bad crop. And before, God had smitten them. God had intervened, and he had caused their crop to fail. And now, having repented of their sins and getting back to the work, they had no way of measuring whether or not they were going to have a successful crop. And friends, that is a crisis moment for a nation that is depending on their food. So they had repented, but manna had not fallen from the sky. God, where are you? I mean, this is how you dealt with your people before. Why can't you deal with us that way too, right? They had repented, but there was no boy with some loaves and fish. They had repented, but there was no immediate and instant physical miracle of God. How will we eat? How will we support the people who are working on the temple? How will little insignificant Judah survive? And this is where we have this wonderful verse of Scripture. And that is, 
verse 19 in particular, the last little phrase, on, on this brink of agricultural disaster that God brings a message now of hope. But, I mean, everything is driving to this word, but, circle it. From this day on, I will bless you. Now get this. He's not blessing them because of the progress of the temple. It's not like, well, okay, you've got walls that are five feet up. Now I'm going to bless you in accordance to how much you got done of the work. It's not what's going on. We think in those terms. We think proportionally. If I pray for an hour, God's going to bless me this much. So I better pray three hours and God's going to bless me this much. Wrong thinking. That's religious formality taking place. God says, this is how I treated you in the past. I know you're uncertain about what's happening in the present, but from now on, from this day on, I will bless you. And friends, this is so important, even with the things that we've been looking at in Haggai, because there has been this, if you sin, God will not bless you. If you sin and you turn your face away from God, he'll withdraw his blessing. They had seen it. They've observed it. They were living with the consequences. And there can be even the sense in which when we talk about sin, that there is this kind of ogre-ish presence and oppression because of God's wrath and the consequences that come from it, but bursting forth out of this conversation that is real and honest about the nature of man and the nature of God's people here is this wonderful promise of blessing. God loves to bless his people. Do I hear an amen for that? Is that a bad thing? All right, very good. He loves to bless his people. But here, we have to understand that there is the possibility of this pendulum to swing so far in both directions. One, that God would never bless. He's all concerned about sin and all that kind of stuff. And the other side, where we don't even talk about sin, it's just blessing, blessing, blessing. There's a balance. Both truths go hand in hand. And here we have them laid out for us on display. So you might be thinking to yourself, what is happening in Haggai doesn't make any difference to me. I don't care about bread, I don't care about stew, I don't care about pomegranates or fig trees, but I'd like to say to you that what God is saying to the remnant of Judah is incredibly significant for you and me. It was significant to them, and it's significant to you. It's significant to all of us that are here this morning. God's words, but from this day on I will bless you, is like an engagement ring that points to a greater day to come. And just pause in that thought. God's promises are like engagement rings that point to something greater yet to come. It is pointing to a Messiah who would come. As they labored on the temple, the place of sacrifice, they were face to face um, with, a, with the, the location where sin would be paid for by the sacrifice of animals, but that place of sacrifice pointed forward to the perfect sacrifice that would yet come. And friends, that is the ultimate blessing for us. That we, through Jesus Christ, would be reconciled to the Father by virtue of what he has accomplished on the cross. That we who are tainted and defiled throughout with sin, 
that by virtue of our embracing him as our Lord and Savior would then be clothed in his righteousness and God would look down on us and look at us through the lens of Jesus Christ and say, you are my holy people. Not because of anything you have done, but because of everything that Jesus Christ, my son, has done. Jesus, then, is the antidote to our problem of pollution. Only Jesus can take our sinfulness and infect us with holiness. It is not our holiness, but it's His holiness. But there's also not only a spiritual side, but there's also a physical side, believe it or not. We have some physical realities that we can join in with these brothers and sisters in Judah to look forward to. Just think through this with me. Because we are his, we know that we will not die because to be absent from the body is what? To be present with the Lord. I just follow the, the thinking here. Because we are his and we won't die, we also know that we will have a resurrected body, right? So yeah, I know that. First Corinthians 15, resurrected body, sure. But why? Why? Because there will one day be a resurrection earth where there will be new vines, new pomegranates, new olives, new fig trees. And we, together with our brothers and sisters in Judah that were a remnant at this point in time, will be joining us as we enjoy the new creation with God that he is preparing for us. There's spiritual blessing, but for all of us there is also a future physical blessing that is real, that is true. Friends, that is something to shout about. Friends, the reality is there is nothing that you and I in and of ourselves can do to make us holy. We can try and work our way to God, but we'll never reach him. What we need is radical change that only comes through the gospel. And having experienced that radical change, God does want us to pursue to be like his son, Jesus Christ. But he doesn't want us to abandon the grace that we've received and the gospel that has brought us into this new relationship. He wants the grace and the gospel to continue to feed us and to give us our comfort and to give us our confidence and our security in him. That we are holy, not because of what we have done or are doing, but because of who Jesus is, and what he has done. And it's very easy for us to drift away into forms of religiousness that are not necessarily as easily identifiable as they would be if we went to some place and we lit a candle or did some, uh, you know, some, some movements with our hands and, and, and bowed and all that kind of stuff, the typical things you think about formal religion. But we can, in our heart, be just as religious in a wrong way. And God says, what I really want is your heart. What I really want is a heart that is pursuing me fully and completely. But you are holy because I have declared you 
righteous and you are holy because my son is holy. You are affected and you are, you are restored through him and him alone. Now, that being true, life may still have its ups and downs. Your holiness does not guarantee peace and safety and joy and happiness in this world because life is full of trials, right? But it does guarantee confidence that my relationship with God is secure and confidence that one day, with all the saints, Old Testament, New Testament, we will enjoy this new creation that God has for us. And we can celebrate together. As we sang earlier today, just along with, with the, the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. Can you just imagine? You imagine that choir? You imagine those voices that we think about, that we're hearing the angels singing, and we get right now here on this earth, we get to sing, but we're still singing with taintedness of sin in our heart, and that's where God wants us, at least at this point, to, to see that we're doing it by virtue of Jesus Christ and what he has done, but one day we will stand before him totally pure, totally clean, without the curse of sin, because the curse of sin has been removed. And friends, we have so much to be thankful for. This is the word of encouragement to the people of Judah at this particular time. In the midst of our work, don't get distracted by your work away from God. Glorify him, live for him, rest on what he is doing and has done in your life. Lord, help us today. A lot of things for us to think about. A lot of ways, Lord, in which you have drawn our attention, Lord, to things that maybe we need to wrestle with. Lord, I, I wondered this morning where there's someone who's wrestling with this idea of original sin, and uh, Lord, there's a battle going on in their heart, Lord, just to recognize the truthfulness of that. I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would, would somehow minister to that heart that is wrestling with that. Maybe someone doesn't like the idea of this word totally depraved, and Lord, I ask that you would help that person to to look in Scripture and to see how man is shown to be sinful uh, in, in all of his parts um, over and over again. Lord, I just ask that that reality be true. Lord, not because we want to condemn people, but we want to be honest about our nature before you so that when we see the beauty of your gospel, that we understand how radical and life-changing your gospel is, that when you come and you give us new life, Lord, that life is not just a little bit new, it is radically new. The poison in that water, Lord, is completely and totally removed. It no longer has any bearing on our standing with you, Lord, all because of your son, Jesus Christ. Although, Lord, we live with a, a nature that is still tainted with sin, Lord, we have your help. We're not in, in bondage to it, Lord. We are not overcome by it unnecessarily. There are ways by your strength, Lord, that we, you give us through your word and your Holy Spirit to overcome the struggles that we have, Lord. We thank you. We thank you for that. But we thank you that in the midst of all that, we have this wonderful hope of that wonderful day yet to come when we will be together with you in heaven, but together with you in heaven in that place that you are going to be recreating for us to live in. Lord, we're, we're limited in our understanding of it, but Lord, we know from your word that it will be a beautiful, wonderful place, and we will celebrate that not just with the people here, but with your children through the ages. We have so much, Lord, to be thankful for and so much to ponder 
Allow your Holy Spirit, Lord, now to have his way with us. We ask in your name. Amen.